3: Okay, welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello. Okay, so those of you who haven't listened to the show before, and of course we're on different times now, the show is usually in two parts. The first part, we talk about elder law and estate planning. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about a variety of different subjects. Just like if you come in for an office consultation, I'd like to know who you are, and a lot of times we start talking about different subjects. On this show, we talk about politics, history, religion, you know, film, a lot of times film, and of course, as part of the history, we spend a lot of time on the Civil War. Tonight, we're going to do something a little different as far as history is concerned. We're going to be talking to Michael Corder about Mm -hmm. Dunkirk. And he wrote a book about Dunkirk and he is, by the way, going to be speaking at the Civil War Roundtable in January about Robert E. Lee. And as I said, we sometimes talk about film and we're gonna do that. Also, we're gonna be talking to Kevin Sorbo and Sam Sorbo about their new film, Let There Be Light. In the meanwhile, why don't we why don't we get the email question, Beth, that we have there?
4: Yeah, this is a this is a tough one, Mike. No, it isn't. Yeah, Dear Mr. Connors, I have never been able to attend one of your seminars. My friend Della did and tried to explain Medicaid eligibility to me. I did not understand her. Would you please give that portion of your seminar over the radio
3: for homebound people like me? Sincerely, Rose. Okay. Well, you know, it's hard to summarize in just a few words. But here's the point. Let's say we said homebound people. Assuming you're 65 or disabled, if you put virtually all your assets in a trust, let's say now in November, you can apply for home care Medicaid, community Medicaid, on December 1st, the first day of the month following the transfer. Now, if somebody's listening to the show, we we play part of it later on another month or something. Basically, Medicaid works on a month-to-month basis. If you put virtually all your assets in a trust, irrevocable trust managed by somebody else, usually family member, if you do that in November, you can apply for home care Medicaid in December. What does home care Medicaid pay for? Home care Medicaid pays for any medical bills not otherwise covered by insurance, but most importantly, it pays for home attendance. And in a lot of cases, people can stay out of a nursing home, where they can, you know, employ home attendants. Now, you can employ almost anybody you want as a home attendant. You can employ your spouse, but you can employ a son or daughter, nephew or niece, trusted relative, neighbor up the street. Or if you don't have somebody, the city can give you an agency that's Medicaid approved, and they can supply you with the workers. And th- there are a lot of good programs in New York to keep you out of a nursing home. And one of the things we need is a doctor to certify that you're disabled medical doctor, and also to back us up on the level of care that you might need to provide for home care Medicaid. Again, there are a lot of good programs in New York. Now, sometimes you may go into the Medicaid office and uh, you walk into the Medicaid office at a hospital or they they have somebody from the Department of Social Services there. You say, I would like to apply for Medicaid for your mother, for my mother. And uh, you say, well, how much does she have in assets? Well, she's got about $20,000 in the bank. How much does she have in income? She's got two thousand dollars a month pension and social security. And the answer would be, well, she's not eligible. Of course, what's not said often is that if mom puts roughly a little over a thousand a month in a pooled income trust and she gives away or spends six thousand dollars, she has twenty, she gives away six, and she gets under fourteen thousand dollars, she can apply for home care Medicaid the next month. Now, a pooled income trust, it's hard to explain in a few words. But basically, it was a law that was passed, regulation was passed some years back, that would allow people, technically, if you have more than $845 a month income, you do not qualify for home care Medicaid. So what do we do? We put your excess income, let's say this in, in this case, the woman has about $2,000 a month income. We put the excess income in a pooled income trust. That trust pays, let's say, for the rent. If somebody owns a house, it pays for the real estate taxes, the insurance, the other expenses of the house. I hope the house is in a trust so we protect that house from a claim against Medicaid later. But in other words, it's a way for middle-class people to get on Medicaid, to enjoy the benefits of home care Medicaid, to keep you out of a nursing home. And, you know, sometimes people say, well, isn't there a five-year look-back period? If you apply for nursing home Medicaid, There is a five-year look-back period, and you have to document every transaction that incurred more than $3,000 for the last five years prior to your application for benefits. A little over 10 years ago, it used to be three years. It was raised to five. So, and and I just want to say another point about that. Just because you have to document all your transactions for, you know, five years prior to your application for benefits, there are a lot of exempt transactions. In other words, transfers to a spouse are exempt from penalty under the five-year look-back period. Transfers to a son or daughter of a homestead who lives in the same property as a parent for two more years is an exempt transfer. Transfer of a homestead to a brother or sister who lives in the same property together for one or more years is an exempt transfer. And transfers to a disabled child are exempt from penalty under the five-year look-back period. So, you know, even when you have the five-year look-back period, there's still a lot of things you can do. And what a lot of people don't understand is say, well, you know, I've got the five-year look-back period. I can't go on that trip to uh, Hawaii or whatever because it's less than five years if I go to a nursing home. No, you can spend your money however you want. What the five-year look-back period does is looking to see if there were any gifts to qualify for Medicaid. The gifts were made, let's say, from a parent to a child. The child's not disabled, and, you know, that's that would incur a penalty. If somebody gives away in New York City... If somebody gives away, let's say, $50,000, they have almost a five-month penalty for nursing home Medicaid. They can't apply for Medicaid five months after they document the transactions. And that's where sometimes making gifts, you know, between husband and wife can be very dangerous. You know, I think we're running to the point we probably should take a commercial because we've got another couple of phone calls backed up. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, talking about estate planning and elder law.
1: For our ask the lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes,
6: it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors and Sullivan's
1: free seminars on Monday, November 27th, at Connolly's Corner, 71-17 Grand Avenue in Masspeth, Queens, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. At the Atria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard, on Wednesday, November 29th, at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. On Thursday, November 30th at Lenny's Bar, 161-03 Cross Bay Boulevard in Howard Beach, Queens at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m.
6: Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment.
1: Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors and Sullivan, 718-238-6500, or go to connorsandsullivan.com.
6: Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com.
1: Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got a question for Mike? Call him at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622.
3: Okay, again, welcome back. Let's try to get some of these phone calls in. Joe from New York City, Veterans Day? What's your question about Veterans Day?
7: Veterans Day? Uh, 50% half of the homeless men and women in this country are American veterans. And the VA is not helping them, nor is the state VA, nor is the local branch of the VA. But uh, Olive Garden, Applebee's, Red Lobster, Ruby Tuesdays, Perkins, IHOP, Denny's, White Castle, Tim Hortons, Donuts, and Krispy Kreme provide a meal, a complimentary meal or a side order or a beverage or a dessert to feed the American veterans on American Veterans Day. It's a shame that the government, the best government in the world, mistreats our American veterans the worst. But the chain restaurants help every year, including Golden Corral. I wanted to let you know, you can tell the brother and sister American veterans, our brother Americans, brother and sister American veterans, that at least they can get a, a decent meal from those Above mentioned, they can also go online. If they're poor, they can go online at the library. And it's one good thing that American veterans can look forward to.
3: Joe, i got a question for you. How do you prove you're a veteran when you go to these restaurants?
7: That's to just show up with the Federal Department of Veterans Affairs, photo ID for American veteran Brings, and the... Um, Honorable American military discharge, any form. They'll accept any form.
3: Okay, well, thank you. And, of course, remember, uh, you know, Veterans Day is going to be a week from uh, today, and let's honor those veterans, And, and we should make this distinction. Some people get this confused. Veterans Day is there to honor the veterans. Memorial Day is to honor the fallen dead. So just keep that in mind. It is a distinction, and sometimes people get that confused. But on Veterans Day, we will have a number of veterans on our show uh, talking about some of their experiences during World War II. So thank you, Joe, for bringing that up. Mike, yes. you know, my
4: friend Ruth Hunt is in charge of the our veteran, helping veterans with my DAR chapter, and we're going to be having a party at, for the homeless veterans at the the VA hospital in Manhattan. So,
3: and When's that going to be?
4: It's going to be the 15th of there, there's a whole week, so it's right after vet, the, the weekend.
3: Okay, let me get to Grace. She's been waiting patiently. Yes, Grace, what's your question?: Yes, Mike.
7: Um, my friend recently passed away, and she left a will where she left me everything. And I've gone to a couple of attorneys, and they've told me that it's going to take years for me to be able to get back the money that I paid to for her funeral much less to access everything else. Is that true?
3: Well, if there are no relatives, yes, probate takes a long time because, one, you have to publish in a newspaper. You may have to hire a genealogist. You probably have to hire a genealogist. You have to publish in a newspaper. A court-appointed lawyer is going to be appointed to protect the missing relatives. And this is all going to to cost a lot of money, and it's going to take time. And, unfortunately, that's the system because under New York state law, if Even if you have a will, everybody who's your next of kin by law has to be officially be notified, otherwise the will can't be probated. And the problem is if you don't have any relatives, then you have to prove you don't have any relatives, and then you still have to convince a court-appointed lawyer that the will was properly signed. And that's one of the reasons, in some cases, you want to avoid probate. And you avoid probate when you pass away. There are no assets in your name alone. You have bank accounts and trusts for a joint. If you have real estate, co-op. That type of investment, you may want to think about a trust agreement. Basically, if your house is in a trust agreement, it's your house as long as you're alive. Then after you're gone, it passes to the beneficiaries without going to court, usually tax-free and without paying for probate. I think we do need to take a short break right now. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, uh, 970 The Answer, and
8: WMCA. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big sea, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org.
9: Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now.
1: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors.
3: Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, a lot of times on this show, we've been talking about the American Civil War. Except when we're speaking to veterans, we haven't talked a lot about World War II. But we're going to correct that today because right now we have a gentleman who is the author of Alone, Britain, Churchill, and Dunkirk, Defeat into Victory. And the author is Michael Corder. How are you doing today, sir?
5: I am doing fine, thank you.
3: World War II is kind of personal for you
5: well it's uh, of course it's personal for millions of people but um but yes um, uh, it 's personal for me because I was um, six years old when it began, and um, I remember you know, large parts of it uh, and wanted to make m- my memory of events uh, at any rate not so much part of the story uh, as 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 a window into looking at the story uh, so that it isn 't just uh, looking back at history but also has some some personal vision of what it felt like um, when war began and when Dunkirk occurred.
3: Okay, so you're six years old when Dunkirk occurs. How does it feel?
5: Well, you know, looking back on it, I realize, and one of the uh, odd things about childhood is that that uh, the up to a certain level, the wartime experience um, uh, is is one which is a child. Um, tends to, to, to excite one rather than make one frightened. So I don't remember being particularly frightened during the first year or year and a half of the Second World War, but obviously things took place that were exciting and interesting, um, and which looking back on it, I now realize were also important. So one of the things I want to do with the book alone is to go back not only and tell the story of Dunkirk itself but tell the story of how we got there from September 1939 to May of 1940 and what that felt like.
3: Why were you in England at the time?
5: Well, I'm English. Um, uh, over the years, I've lost my accent. I, I, I was shipped over along with a, uh, a several hundred other English children of my age to Canada in the autumn of 1940 and then my, made my way um, uh, into the United States. Um, And that was fairly frequent because, as I point out in the book, uh, the British government, in fact, had elaborate plans, uh, which were carried out, to remove almost 2 million children from London uh, in 1939 because it was believed at the time that the war would begin with this stupendous air raid that would level London and and kill millions of people, or at any rate hundreds of thousands of people, and that there would be poison gas and every other possible horror. And um, th- this was the vision of how war would begin and take place, um, that H.G. Wells had more or less passed on to us all in, 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 in the shape of things to come. And the government acted on that assumption. I mean, they printed up millions of death certificates in advance and they made plans to ship 2 million children either into the British countryside out of London or, in the case of certain children, out of England altogether by sending them to Canada or the colonies, and I was one of those children. Uh, You know, that's not what happened. As it happened, the Germans were in no position to do any such bombing in 1939, Um, and um, even when they did begin begin serious bombing, um, it was not on the scale that H.G. Wells had forecast. But... uh, But like a lot of children, I was simply disrupted and sent um, uh, eventually out of the country to Canada.
3: Now, how did Dunkirk come about? How did the British forces get into the position where they had to retreat?
5: The British forces, which were relatively small, the French army in 1939, consisted of approximately 3 million men, uh, which is a substantial army. Um, The British army... uh, In France, the British expeditionary force consisted of only two divisions, which was later increased to four. So the British army took its place in the line of battle, which stretched from the Swiss borders um, up to the the English Channel, um, and got its orders from the French. Um, When the Germans uh, astonished everybody by making their main attack, not as everybody expected, through Holmes in Belgium, but through the Ardennes towards Sedan and the Meuse River, and the British found themselves advancing into Belgium, where they were going to be expected to fight. And then suddenly having to retreat as the French to their south collapsed and the Belgians to their north collapsed. There was really nowhere for them to go. Uh, a very large part of my book alone is exactly about the entire German plan, which is enormously interesting, of breaking through the French defenses on the Meuse River and advancing directly to the English Channel, and therefore cutting the British Expeditionary Force off from its supplies and from its ports, so that when that happened, the British found themselves with nowhere to go but but, but the Channel. They had only one port that they could reach, and that was Dunkirk, by no means the best or most convenient port. Um, and uh, and I think the film of Dunkirk, which is out just at this moment, uh, um, uh, captures that experience wonderfully well. Uh, nobody expected um, to end up with 315,000 men on the beach of Dunkirk.
3: Now, speaking about films, your family has a history with film.
5: Yes. Uh, but everybody in my family has been in the motion picture business except for myself. Um, but and I didn't go mainly because I thought there were probably enough quarters already making movies or appearing in movies without um, another one in the next generation. And I went into book publishing and writing instead. Uh, but my my father uh, was was deeply involved in the H.G. Wells film, uh, or rather in his and my uncle Alex Cordes film, of H.G. Wells' novel, Shape of Things to Come. Uh, uh, and and that was a movie that had a tremendous influence, both over, uh, over the British public um, and over the British government, because it opened with these scenes of vast destruction as war breaks out in London is totally destroyed. And this came in, implanted in everybody's mind, um, So I wanted to weave all these strands together, not just to deal with Dunkirk itself. I mean, the film of Dunkirk, the movie, captures Dunkirk wonderfully, but that's a four- or five-day experience once the British Army hit the beach. I wanted to show step-by-step how we got there and why we got there.
3: Now, what is the importance of Dunkirk in your mind as to the war in general, and why should we be studying it today?
5: Well, I think, first of all, it's probably the turning point in the war because the German decision to halt their armored forces, their panzer divisions, um, for refitting and rest um, for two days uh, gave the British a chance to organize this most extraordinary feat of taking 338,000 men off the beach at Dunkirk in small boats, without which I think Churchill's government would have collapsed, Britain would have sought peace terms from the Germans and received peace terms of some kind, and the Second World War would have taken on a very different um, uh, um, history than the one that we know about. I think that Hitler would, in effect, have won his war, and the world we now know, however awful it is, would be a a much, much more awful place. So Dunkirk has enormous importance. Uh, If if we had not gotten our army, because the forces at Dunkirk consisted largely of the British regular army, Uh, they were the the men without whom a new army could not be formed or trained, experienced regulars. Uh, Without getting them off the beach, we would have had virtually no army in England at all. And the British government could never, in my view, have continued the war for very long and would not have done so. since There were members of the British government already trying to seek out what German surrender terms would be, as there were in France, where where that is what happened. So that's point number one, is that's the point at which by an error in judgment, the Germans, in effect, lost the war that they thought they had won, um, and they lost it by what must have seemed to them at the time a relatively small decision, which is to halt the armor and give it a rest of the time to refit re- 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 itself. Uh, number two is that it's an extraordinary epic in courage. It's it's a, it, it's a by any standards one of the most significant um, events that has ever taken place in war is is the ability to get, um, as I say, 338,000 men off a godforsaken beach um, and get them home and get them in over 800 small ships, the smallest of which was 14-foot-4 inches long with an outboard motor, um, it, it, there's, there's, no, there's no equivalent um, event that took place ever. Um, it, is, it, it is this unique um uh, and then it is, it, it is a defeat that became a victory. Okay,
3: the name of the book, Alone, Britain, Churchill, and Dunkirk Defeat into Victory, the author, Michael Corder. Thank you, Mr. Corder, for bringing history to life on Connor's Corner.
5: Thank you very much for letting me do so.
0: Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. Adult stem cell research is nothing new. It has been going on for decades and, in fact, has proven helpful in treating various diseases. In the process of this research, nobody has to be killed in order to obtain the stem cells. Embryonic stem cell research, on the other hand, only began in 1998 and does involve killing a new human life in order to obtain the cells. The number of diseases that have been successfully treated with embryonic stem cells is zero. They have shown no medical benefit. And even if they did, such activity is immoral. The end does not justify the means. Adult stem cells have treated various forms of leukemia, sickle cell disease, anemia, and carcinoma. Embryonic stem cells have succeeded in nothing. This is Father Frank Lavone, National Director of Priests for Life.
3: I have children. How can I protect them if something happens to me? Will my
6: assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones
4: still here? Who will help us take care of grandma?
1: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors.
3: Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, a lot of times right now I get tired of going to movies because every once in a while you, see, you might even see a Western and all of a sudden somebody starts spouting some liberal garbage. But I think we've got a film coming out right now where we're not going to hear that. And we're very happy to have Kevin and Sam Sorbo. How are you guys doing today?
10: That was probably one of the best introductions I've had. Thank <laughs> you very much. You may use that.
3: <laughs> okay, okay. So the mo- name of the movie is Let There Be Light. What's it about?
10: So it's about the world's greatest atheist who has a crisis of faith. Something challenges his worldview, and he has to reconcile that, and it's very difficult for him. So he's kind of spiraled out of control, and, uh, and his, uh, he turns to his ex-wife from whom he's been estranged since the loss of their firstborn. Uh, but he is still trying to be a good dad to their second two children, uh, their two boys. And um, I play the ex-wife, and my husband Kevin plays this uh, world-traveling, uh, world-renowned atheist. And, yeah, it, you know what? I, I, made the, I made the kind of movie that I wanted to see. I don't see a lot of stuff that's coming out of Hollywood because, as you mentioned in the introduction, it's filled with garbage. And, in fact, I wrote a book about homeschooling because I'm a homeschool advocate, and there's a chapter in the book called Poop in the Water. And it refers to, you know, you're you're thirsty, and I offer you a glass of water, and it's beautiful and crisp, clear, and it's dripping, and you're thirsty, and you want it. And as you lift lift it to your lips, I say, there's just a little poop in the water. Are you going to drink it? No, and that's how I feel about a lot of the movies that are coming out of Hollywood. They just, that's just a little poop in the water. I, I'm just not interested, you know what I mean? So I made a movie that, that appeals to um, people of faith who have good, solid values, and this is the kind of movie that they want to see, and they're, they're showing up at the theaters in droves. We have the number two uh, per screen box office average which is pretty cool because there's a little bit of a bias against faith-based films. And by faith-based, I mean Christian cinema in the theaters. So we got the little tiny brinky-dink theaters, even though we're at the AMC multiplexes or whatever. They put us on the 42-seat theater, uh, and we sold out. And our per-screen average is still exceptional. So people are loving the movie. We're very excited about going into this second week and, and broadening our reach and expanding into more theaters.
3: Now, can you explain to the audience sometimes the problems that Christian filmmakers may have in distribution?
2: Well, I think Dan pretty much is kind of said it. I mean, there there's a a bias there, and it's tough it's tough to get you know independent movies in theaters to begin with, because you know the theater owners would rather put in Star Wars twelve and uh, you know Indiana Jones forty six and Pirates of the Caribbean twenty nine, and because they know those are big budget movies and people keep going to them, so Hollywood's going to keep making them. I get it; it's called show business, right? But the reality is a lot of the movies are putting out, if you look at this last weekend, this George Clooney, Matt Damon movie just absolutely bombed. We had a bigger, they're on 2,500 screens. We were on 360, 370. And we had a better screen average than they did. We finished number 10 overall, but number two, as Sam said, per screen. What's happening is that people are looking for movies like this. I used to, you know, I travel a lot, going through airports. I get stopped all the time. Used to be because of Hercules or Andromeda. Now it's always because of God's not dead. What a soul surfer! Any one of these movies that I've done in the past, and that say, please make more movies like this. And it just told me there's a hunger out there for movies that are are character driven. That you have you have characters that people can relate to that that can they can cry with, they can share with, they can fight with, they can go through because they they deal with those same situations in real life. And people are looking for that. And this movie is just coming out now doing as well as it did proves that and now we're going to bump up to 200 more screens um this this week to get closer to 600 screens and hopefully people keep showing up and we'll just keep going upwards with the number of theaters
3: now changing the subject slightly kevin everybody knows you as an actor but you're directing this film or you directed this film
2: i directed it yeah i um i started directing back in my hercules years actually but uh this is my first feature film and it was great it was a wonderful experience with an amazing crew and uh it, it was fantastic. I was very lucky to work with people in different departments that, that uh, you know, they, they they know what they're doing, and they did their job great.
3: What's the challenges of both acting and directing in the same film?
2: I'm a, too hard a critic on myself. <laughs> I don't know. It's, okay. You know, it's, uh, I, I know when I read scripts, I read them over and over and over, and I break down the scenes, and I'm into it. So, so to me, I come in with my notes. I know what I want the actors to do, but I'm open to what their suggestions are as well. I'm open to uh, what the, uh, the director of photography has in mind for the scene because I, I have my ideas, but you will say that doesn't work because of the sun during this time of day, blah, 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 whatever it may be. So to me, it's I, I look for people that are easy to work with because I'm easy to work with, and I shoot quick. I know what I like. I, I'm, I'm a... I'm a uh, a fan of Clint Eastwood, he's a he's a two take kind of guy, and he makes Academy Award winning movies and shoots eight hour days. So uh, I'm I'm a fan of what he does and the way he works. And uh, to me, it's it, I I always I don't call the action, I call the cut. But I mean, the action I lead to uh, my first or second A B on the set because I I, I want to be into the scene when it starts, but I know when I want to cut the scene.
3: Now again, there's another challenge that you guys encountered in this film working with each other. How hard or easy is that to do?
10: you know um you 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 caught me a little bit off guard i we we've been married almost twenty years uh we just we have a partnership and it goes across the board so working together um you know we we bang heads a little bit but we we actually some disagree, so when we do it's it's heartfelt and uh and we just work through it and um typically I win, so I'm good wow. at that. <laughs> <laughs>
5: How did the
3: film first come into play? How did you develop the idea? How did it come into fruition?
10: Well, like I said, I, you know, I stopped going to, theater, going to the theater to see movies because I was so often disappointed. And, um, and then I, started, I, I actually started developing a faith-based television show about three years ago because I, I wanted to see another faith-based show on TV. And um, I brought that all the way through the, I sold it and then they decided not to make it. And so I was sort of tossing around and I thought of this idea for this movie. And I I just thought this would be a great, a great film to see. I would love to see this movie. So I reached out to Dan Gordon, who is a very well-known Hollywood uh, Oscar caliber screenplay writer and asked him to write it with me. And after initially saying no, because as I said, he's a, oscar-worthy screenplay writer uh when he heard the idea he jumped in with both feet and said yes uh, because it's a human drama and it's a real life type of a thing and it's got real dramatic moments and you as as a writer you don't often get the opportunity to write those things and he just believed in the idea behind it and the story behind it and the the christian element that was behind it and so he jumped in and then within two weeks Completely out of the blue, Sean Hannity called my husband and said, hey, I want to do a movie with you, a faith-based film. Do you have anything? At which point, I started jumping up and down. And So Kevin and Dan and I flew to New York and pitched on, and within half an hour, he was basically writing us a check. I mean, the genesis of this movie is nothing short of
1: miraculous.
3: One thing I always had a problem understanding, obviously Hollywood, you know, they're making their films, you're in the system, you're not in the system, whatever. But there are a lot of conservatives out there, there are a lot of Christians out there who do have money. Why is it so hard for the for the Christian community, the conservative community, to make films?
2: You know, it, it's a good question. I find it interesting. As Sam said, you know, it's very rare that the money chases the project. I've got some amazing scripts. I want to. I want to. I don't have to direct them all, but I certainly want to act in them because I love the parts in them. But I love the story as well, that are in that range of what this movie is. This is a three million dollar movie. So, in that two to five million dollar range, it's it's there's a risky venture. There's no question, but. the, you know, when you have the budget at that level, there's a much better chance at least a break breaking even to get money back on it. And uh, To me, I'm I'm always shocked at the number of people I meet that are wealthy people. I do a lot of celebrity golf events. I golf with very, you know, successful CEOs of companies. And I'm always shocked that they say, hey, keep making these movies. These are great. But when I send scripts to them and say, hey, let's, uh, you know, let's try to work together, you know, the, the phone goes silent. So I, I don't know. I don't know because... I've had many pastors through the years tell me, you know what, I'm a pastor at a small church of 300 people. You reach millions. And I go, yeah, but you know what, I need your church and thousands more like you to support these movies. Otherwise, these movies will stop being made. We need that support. So um, if anybody's out there listening and they want to talk to me, I've got some great scripts of of all types, you know, basketball ones, whatever. But they're all family movies. They're they're They're, faith-based. They put out a strong message. So um, you asked a tough question, and I can't completely answer. I don't quite get why we don't get more support.
10: Well, I'm going to chime in here because I have a theory. Um, ask yourself why, uh, why abortion is a political issue, and I'll tell you why it's a political issue. It's because if they make it a political issue, they can win because they can cow you into not discussing it, or, uh, or they can cow you into believing that there are two sides. Uh, that it's political and you're being political when you support life and the fact is that the, I believe the conservative and Christian community has been duped into thinking that these are political issues and in the fact that they're political issues and with political correctness they've been cowed sort of out of the conversation. I know so many conservative Christians who support polit- politicians, right? And they donate to political campaigns, and that's great. But politics is downstream from culture. And if you want to affect the culture, it's through the storytellers. That's why Jesus spoke in parables, because stories move the culture, because they're emotionally, emotionally engaging. And so that's what we've decided to, to try to do here, is to move the culture a little bit and to, and to show Uh, the Christian conservative viewpoint. It
2: will change politics.
10: That's right. And what we're discovering, what's fascinating is, our movie performed extraordinarily well over the weekend, and so the Hollywood Reporter, in reporting on the box office over the weekend, ignored it.
3: It's kind of like the New York Times bestseller list, but what can you say?
10: You can say this. You can say, I want everybody who's listening right now to make a statement and go to the theaters this weekend, or during the week even, and show up and buy a ticket and send a message to Hollywood that you will not be silenced just because they are trying to ignore you.
3: Can you tell the audience again why it's important to see a film in its beginning weeks?
10: Oh, my gosh. Well, of course, the opening weekend, it tells the tale. The opening weekend sets the entire tone. Um, In theory, I should be looking at lots of... Uh, great reviews of the film and great stories about what a success this is. This little tiny David of a film took on the Goliath of Hollywood and we won and all that. But we're not seeing that because they they want to quash it. They, they want to silence us. And, uh, and I'm here to tell you that they can't silence us as long as people go to the theaters. So we are expanding. We're opening in more theaters. You can go to lettherebelightmovie.com to find theaters near you. And if for some reason you don't have a theater near you, you can go to the LetThereBeLightMovie.com and figure out either how to do group ticket sales to get, the theater, uh, to get a theater near you to open, or just call your local theater and say, hey, why aren't you carrying this film? Because I'll tell you, there's a bit of a threshold with theaters even uh, in, in taking on faith-based films. Um, they, they, they raise the threshold, and they say, no, you have to jump through these hoops if you're a faith-based film unlike the, the, the normal sort of horror flick or, or thriller or slicer or blow them up, bang them up, shoot them up, flick. Um, you know, they, they, they have a higher bar for the faith-based movies. And, and I'll tell you something. Hollywood used to make faith-based movies. That's all Hollywood made. The old movies are all, would all be considered faith-based movies today. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington would be considered a faith-based movie today because it exhibits traditional Judeo-Christian values. And so would It's a Wonderful Life. Um, so that's what we're trying to do here. And, and I have a plan to continue making these films, But um, and I'm happy to do it independently. Uh, in fact, I, I would prefer to do it independently because I don't want Hollywood's opinion all over my film. But uh, my film's only independent until it gets to theaters, and then it's very dependent on people showing up.
3: What's disturbing about listening to you, Sam – is that, in effect, you're saying it's not that Hollywood is indifferent to Christianity, but that it is anti-Christian?
10: You, you sound like that's news.
3: Yeah. Well, I'm just bringing that out.
10: <laughs> yeah. Look at look at what's coming out of Hollywood. Do you think do you think Harvey Weinstein is indifferent indifferent to Christianity, or do you think he's anti-Christianity?
3: That's a very good point.
10: I mean, I know what you, I know what he would say. Right. He said, "I didn't know it was wrong." Of course he knew it was wrong. He just didn't believe in wrong. He didn't believe that there was wrong and right.
3: That's true. Do you have guys any is, opinion yeah, about Kevin Spacey and what's coming out now?
10: Yeah, so I, I actually, I've been swamped, so I haven't read up on that. But I, I heard that there was an allegation for which Kevin Spacey apologized. Um, and uh, and I I think that, that, that time will tell if that was a pattern or a single incident in which he misbehaved. Uh, you know, with Christianity, there's such a thing as forgiveness, but, um, you know, when it becomes what's serial behavior like Harvey Weinstein, where he did it repeatedly and then paid, it away repeatedly, uh, it's not that he didn't know it was wrong. It's that he didn't believe that there was such a thing as wrong. He didn't care. He operates, look, we're, we, we are facing today a clash of worldviews. And it's it's about time that the Judeo-Christian community wake up and understand that it's not an indifference to, it is an against, the Judeo-Christian values. When when they took the Bible out of school, they did not remove religion, they replaced Judeo-Christianity with secular humanism, which holds that survival of the fittest is the law of the land. And survival of the fittest is exactly what Harvey Weinstein practices. And so if you hold that survival of the fittest is the law of the land, then you really don't have an argument against what, what Harvey Weinstein did. Because if you think that it's wrong to accost young women, I, I would like to see your moral standard for that. Where, where is it written down somewhere? Who who has the moral standard that says that it's wrong?
3: What if Harvey Weinstein were a conservative?
10: What if he were?
3: Do you think there'd be a difference?
10: Oh, uh, in, in the reaction to him?
3: Not yes. by me. Okay
10: i be, I I suppose I'd be a little bit more shocked. But you know, we look. The conservative side has, has people that also don't hold don't hold up the moral standard. Absolutely, it's not that it's not that he's the only guy out there. It's that he represents a whole group of people. Some of some of whom uh, would come from the other side of the aisle. Maybe I'm not saying that they don't exist, but I am saying that that uh, uh, if you hold to Judeo Christian ethic. You tend to treat people better.
3: All right. Well, God bless you guys for what you're doing. The name of the movie, Let There Be Light.
10: Go to lettherebelightmovie.com. Uh, you can find out all the information. You can see a trailer. You can see our testimonials videos. See what people are saying when they come out of the theater, and see if that doesn't entice you to go to the theater. And if that doesn't, then just go because you want to send a message to Hollywood.
3: Kevin and Sam, God bless you. Hope the film thank does you. well. Everybody, go out and see it as soon as you can. Even buy tickets, even if you're not going to go see it. But we want the film to do well to send a message. And thank you guys for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Okay, well, Beth, what would you think of uh, Sam Sorbo there?
4: I think she's got the spirit. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I, you know, you were right. God bless people that that butt their heads against these people. If you're in Hollywood now, you're a conservative. What a miserable time you you can have. So yeah, God bless them, and I hope. Are we going to go see it? Yeah. All right. And probably buy some DVDs
3: of, I- of it when it comes out too. Very good. I Give hope it to some of, of our, our listeners. listeners out there.
4: That's right. I hope that y'all, if you can go, go see it, and then spread the word. Now, remember, remember, getting things distributed is very hard. Remember, Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's magnificent movie. He could not get it distributed, so he went to he went around the 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 Hollywood distributors and he went to churches all over the place and then when they saw oh my gosh we can make money on this then all of a sudden it was in the big theaters
3: all right now our other guest Michael Corder is also going to be speaking at the Civil War Roundtable in January because he wrote a book about Robert E. Lee the life and legend of Robert E. Lee. So he's going to be speaking at the Civil War Roundtable on January 8th. But, of course, on November 13th, that's our next meeting. And we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, to me, a fascinating general of the Civil War, William S. Rosecrans, who performed brilliantly in outmaneuvering Braxton Bragg through Tennessee and in effect, you know, when you go to Chattanooga, that's at the edge of Tennessee where we're just getting into Georgia and Alabama. And he outmaneuvered him brilliantly and had a little bit of a setback at the Battle of Chickamauga. But, you know, he, he had a major contribution to the Union effort in the Civil War. And he's kind of forgotten today. And we're going to correct that on November 13th. That's our West Point night at the Civil War Roundtable. And we're going to have our meeting at, again, November 13th, 530 at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street, 3 West 51st Street. If you want to call, you got to call for reservations. And the phone number there is 718-341-9811. 718-341-9811. And you have to call for reservations because we need to know how many people to set up for. And seating is limited, especially now when we're on Monday nights at at the 3 West Club. Now, we're going through a lot of changes speaking about nights. And I know some people are calling the office and saying, when are you on? I, you know, I can't find you anymore. <laughs> uh, I, I, we're causing some confusion out there. Saturdays, now this is barring football games, Syracuse football. Too bad they lost today. But Syrac- barring Syracuse football games, we're on the answer, a.m. 970, Saturdays from 6 to 7 p.m. and Sundays from 5 to 6 p.m. Saturdays from 6 to 7, Sundays from 5 to 6, a.m. 970, the answer. Now, a lot of the schedule, we get bumped for a football game, whether it's NFL football on Sundays, Syracuse football on Saturdays. But if you want to listen to our show, get up a little bit early on Saturdays. We're on a.m. 570, the mission, on Saturdays at 8 o'clock.
4: We won't get bumped for anything for that one.
3: Right. So if you wanna you know, you wanna hear us, you got three opportunities to hear us weekly. Usually we're gonna have at least two shows on. Now, if you wanna email us a question, we changed our email address. So Beth, what's our email address now?
4: I think it's a lot easier. I
3: don't, but that's I'm I not, know. I'm well not we in got used to
4: the other one. I know, I know. Ask Mike Connors at gmail dot com when you were doing the other one you had to spell connor's right and and, and spell out a and d you know at connor's and sullivan so the only thing i think you're going to have to worry about is make sure your connor's is c-o-n-n-o-r-s so ask mike connor's at gmail.com and that that's our new email address so spread the word if you have any questions and you don't want to call in because you know that's kind of embarrassing sometimes. Just send your email to us and give as much information as you can in the email, so um, Mike knows the best way to answer it. So ask Mike Connors at gmail.com, and then there's always Facebook. Um, if you've missed our show, you can go to Facebook. And um, it'll have all the um, all of our guests, our past guests. You can go back in time, and then it'll also um, show you how to get to the YouTube so that you can actually listen to Mike's interviews. So we've got it all.
3: Okay. Now, also, well, okay, David, David Kincaid is starting oh, to no, oh, no. take us back. So we got a short short time left thank you for listen, listening to ask the lawyer catch us hopefully next week the same time if not maybe catch us at a.m. 570 the mission on saturdays at eight o'clock we're gathered here on hallowed ground voices raised, heads bowed down we're gathered here
1: on hallowed ground to sing this song away